God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to contrive some kind of message that will draw people into Gospel Life Church. Thank you, Lord, that you don't put this pressure on us to try to figure out a strategy for um, a message that we could craft or create that people might found, find interesting or compelling or hopeful, but rather you give, you give a hope to us in the scriptures. You've revealed yourself in such a way that if we, if we look here into this word, we see a hope that goes above and beyond anything we could have imagined. So thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And this morning we pray that your spirit would be at work showing us Christ in the text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so believe it or not, it is the fourth week of Advent. You know, uh, as evidenced here by yet another candle lit on our Advent wreath, this time of displaying joy with one more candle remaining to be lit at the center, which will light together this Christmas Eve, which is Jesus, the reason for the joy that we experience in Advent. Um, this longing for hope in the midst of despair, light in the midst of darkness, truly does lead to joy when it comes to fruition. In other words, central to the question of Advent, by the time we get to week four, right, central to the question of Advent is what causes joy? in the life of the Christian. Like, why is, is the Christian life different from any other hope that's held out to us in the world around us? Well, in part, here's what joy is. Here's what Advent joy is. Joy is a response to the realization, to our realization, of a deep, central, and desperate need that's met in an unexpected way that truly goes beyond anything that we could have possibly imagined as an answer to that need. Let me say that again. Joy is a response to the realization of a deep, central, and desperate need. And it's met in an unexpected way that truly goes beyond anything we could have possibly imagined as an answer to that need. So when we look at our text for the next two weeks, Zechariah chapters 11 and 12. This is really a two-part sermon. These two texts, I think, are meant to be, in a lot of ways, preached together. And so what, what we're looking at is a two-part sermon for the next two weeks. This week, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, the text directs us primarily to our great need for God to do something that we could never do for ourselves. Right? It's a recognition this morning in the text of our condition as humans and the longing and expectation that we have that this recognition should create in us for God to come, for him to come and do something on our behalf, right? On Christmas Eve, then, this coming Saturday, we move from our great need to God's great answer, the incarnation. So, so this is God, it's the Saturday night, God coming to do precisely what we needed, even when we didn't realize that it's what we needed. Even while we fought against it, you know, it's like it's unexpected and going above and beyond anything that we could have possibly imagined as an answer to that need. So I invite you back on Saturday night for Christmas Eve service with us. Bring friends, bring family, bring neighbors, anyone who's looking for hope because this text is meant to set us up. The text we're looking at now is meant to set us up to anticipate what God would do in Jesus. And the way it does that this morning, the way it begins is by using a rhetorical uh, device that's common even today. So it's likely this morning, if you're here, that you've, you know, if we polled us, the majority of us, 
would most likely have either read a book or watched a movie, watched a play, in which the storyteller, the playwright, um, starts the story somewhere toward the end and gives you usually a short glimpse of what's to come in order to draw you in and make you wonder, like, how are things going to end up this way? You know, sometimes you're watching a movie and it starts with this, like, real sudden glimpse of this thing that's happening, and you're left kind of wondering back in the beginning, you're wondering, whoa, how do we get from here to there? It hooks you into the story, and you progress then through the narrative, you go back to the beginning, progress through the narrative to the end again, and by the time you get to that end the second time, it makes the vision of that future far more compelling. It ties it all together. You have a greater understanding of all of these things, and in a very real sense, this is what's happening in Zechariah chapter 11. We see the history of God's people unfolding, the redemptive history of God's people unfolding in three acts. Okay, so it's like we're watching a play in three acts. The author here records the redemptive history of God in three acts. Zechariah writes it almost as if he's authoring a play for us to watch that will unfold this redemptive history for us. So first we'll see Number one, a foreshadowing pronouncement or a glimpse forward in which he'll tell us where things are headed before we get there. He'll kind of hook the reader with this vision of what's to come. And then uh, we'll move from that to a historical summary. He hooks us into this look backward. So now we start back at the beginning and he'll go back and he'll walk God's people through their history, finally landing them in this, their present day circumstances of post-exilic Israel. They'll have a focus on the here and now that will ultimately make his vision for the future far more compelling, far more understandable. All right, okay, a glimpse forward, a look backward, and then a focus on the here and now. That's what we're seeing. So let's start with the glimpse forward, verses one through three. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. For the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. So here we see a foreshadowing announcement. We see this glimpse forward into something that will happen in the future. And what's being described here is none other. If you're looking for like a summary statement of this glimpse forward, it's this. False shepherds being struck down. False shepherds over Israel finally being struck down. And so in other words, in preparation for the reality that God's people will fully and finally one day reside in God's place under his rule again. That, that once again they will be his people. They'll be in his place. They'll be under his rule. It's been the promise of the covenant from the very beginning. In preparation for that, God will clear out those who are taking advantage and ruling oppressively with self-interest over God's people. He'll clear them away the way that a logging company clears out a section of forest, or even better, I think, in terms of a descriptor, the way that a property owner might clear out diseased or nuisance trees in anticipation of someone coming to live there, creating a giant burn pile in which these trees just go up in flames. These diseased trees, these nuisance trees. And the tree language here is interesting precisely because I think it, it gives us a lot of context and clues as to who these false shepherds are who are being cut down in the first three verses. So there are some 
who come here to Zechariah 11 and they think these are false shepherds from within Israel. Then there are some who picture these as false shepherds who are coming into Israel from the outside. They're foreign rulers. My sense is it's the latter. My sense here in verses 1 through 3 is that the context is describing false shepherds who are outside rulers. Those who've come in and claimed an authority over God's people that they were never given. Bringing into Israel their pagan and idolatrous practices and leading God's people astray. But regardless of whether they're shepherds from inside Israel or shepherds from outside Israel, foreign rulers or or, um, people from inside Israel, the the primary point that Zechariah wants to make here is that they are indeed false. And he does that by portraying them as trees. Trees. Why is that significant? Well, because that's precisely the language that Zechariah has been using throughout the book and that Isaiah before him used throughout his prophecy in order to describe the true shepherd. So do you remember this? Like, what is the name? Think for a minute. A little quiz. What is the name that Zechariah has repeatedly given to this one who is to come, who will finally rescue God's people? What's this name that he borrows from Isaiah, right? And then he routinely uses in Zechariah? He's the shoot, right? The branch, the root, the one who springs forth from the ground to save. And all of these here in verses 1 through 3, we, we see shoots that have come up that are now being described in verses 3 as false. False shoots, false roots, false saviors, offering false hopes and a false view of the world that doesn't give way to salvation but to, to further sin and suffering. It's not for the good of God's people. It's actually very much for their bad, for their shame. And the way that these so-called shepherds, false shoots, have treated God's people is shown actually. Like we see a glimpse into their hearts in their reaction to God's judgment upon them. Like look at how they react to God's judgment upon the land. Look at verse 3 again. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. These shepherds, they're not, listen to me, they're, they're not mourning a realization of what they've done against God's people. Like it's, they're not cut to the heart with sin and seeing what they've done and so they're mourning that. They're not mourning their abusive practices in taking advantage of and stealing from widows and orphans, which is precisely what they were doing. Why are they mourning? Well, they're mourning because they've because of what they've lost in this destruction, right? They're mourning that they can no longer oppress people. Like, they no longer benefit from it. They're, they're mourning that they, they got caught. The jig is up. It's over, right? The next sentence here, it says, it says um, they mourn because their glory is ruined, right? It's about their glory. It's not their offense against God's glory. And, and then the next sentence about lions, I think, is just a restatement about The same idea. These verses, they belong to a Hebrew stanza of of poetry. You have to learn how to read poetry. And when we do that, we see that it's very common. It's very common in Hebrew poetry to repeat the same idea side by side um, in order to to portray a couple of different creative ways of, of, of one thing that's happened, right? It's called parallelism. And I think that's what's happening here. The lines are meant to be parallel with the shepherds. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. In other words, it's saying, and the imagery here is powerful, 
It's saying that they, they claim to be shepherds. And who are shepherds? Like, what are shepherds supposed to be doing with the flock? They're supposed to be protecting it. In fact, they're supposed to be protecting it from the lions. They're supposed to be fighting off the lions who prey against the sheep. But these shepherds are actually lions dressed in shepherd's clothing. Right? They're devouring the sheep. Rather than being protective of God's people, they've been predatory on God's people. So, so they're predatory leaders, predatory shepherds. And so God's, God promises once again in the book of Zechariah to come to clear out those who have these intentions to prey on God's people, to lead them away from the living, of God, living God. For those who claim some kind of an authority over God's people that God never gave them. And in the end, they won't have a godly grief that leads to repentance. You know, once again, it reminds me of, we were in Revelation for a long time, but it reminds me of these earth dwellers in Revelation that they, they also mourn, they also weep. You know, they wail, but they're not mourning their sin. There's a mourning that happens. They mourn the consequences of their sin. You know, but they never repent. They hate God. They don't repent. Um, that's the kind of wailing we're seeing here, a worldly sorrow, not a godly grief that leads to repentance, but a worldly sorrow over the wealth and position and standing that they've lost. And we can oftentimes, I think, is, we can often wrestle with it. We can respond this way, in which you know, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. Rather than responding in this godly grief that leads to repentance, we'll often we'll mourn, but we mourn the consequences of our sin, Right? And it can be confusing, right? I mean, like, I've walked with people in this process where I see mourning, but I don't see repentance. And I see sorrow, but I don't see, you know, and, and people might say, well, I don't get it. I'm repentant. Look, I'm, I'm really sorry that I did that. But what's being mourned is the consequences for sin, not the sin itself. And that's it's common, right? And that's what's happening here. They're unrepentant. But God, God holds out hope to God's people by showing them in Act 1 of this redemptive historical drama a glimpse forward into what he will do. He makes this foreshadowing pronouncement. The false shepherds will be struck down. The predatory leaders, the, those who prey on God's people, will no longer have that predatory power. God will protect his people from that. And yet, as we've seen throughout Zechariah, you know, what, what are God's people supposed to think of this? You know, this is like, we're, we're a little bit on repeat here. Uh, what do they think about this future glimpse? They're, they're sitting, watching this first act of the historical drama unfold. They're seeing this glimpse forward and saying, okay, time out. That's not remotely what has happened to us after exile. Like when you read the prophet Jeremiah, there's this promise that after exile is over with, there's this, there's this future coming kingdom, right? And, but that's not what's... So, so we get this glimpse of the future, but the foreign ruler still preys upon us. The surrounding nations, along with those who are now ruling over us, continue to be predatory rather than protective. So, so while there's hope that Zechariah is holding out here, there's also disappointment and disillusionment from within the people of God because of their present circumstances. So we're reading this. How are we going to get there? So Zechariah now gives them, in a second act, a look backwards. So the future glimpse... Foreshadowing pronouncement, right? Act one, false shepherds struck down. Now we see a second act, okay? A look backwards. This is in uh, verses 4 through 14. We'll work through it incrementally, but let's just start in verse 4, okay? Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So 
In case you think I'm going too far with my outline and being too clever and creative by calling it a play in three different acts, I want to I just say, um, what we find here, this is very intentional, because what we find here in the text is a call from the Lord to Zechariah in verse 4 to essentially act out this history of God's people. Now, in, the, in Old Testament prophecy, it's useful to know this as you're reading through prophetic books. In Old Testament prophecy, what's happening here is often referred to as sign actions, in which a prophet is told to do something as a symbol. It's symbolic. He's told to do a thing that's symbolic related to some past, present, or future reality for the people of God. So he tells Elisha, open a window and shoot out a bunch of arrows in order to kind of act out our, the reality of our neediness for, for God. Right? He, he tells Ezekiel to lay on his left side. He commands him another time to eat a scroll. He's, he's doing these commands. He's giving these commands to the prophets in order to dramatize some reality that he wants to make Israel aware of. Right? The language here is in future tense, so it can be confusing. Like I think a lot of times we read Old Testament prophecy. We see future tense words, and so it causes some confusion because we think, oh, this must be related to a future act, and then we read that prophecy from within this 21st century lens that the you know, people who lived in Zechariah's day couldn't have possibly understand, but now we understand this thing that's yet to come. And I think we miss here, um, that's, not, that's not how sign actions function. So it's, it's present tense, but I think it becomes clear, and it becomes very important as the text unfolds. It's not intended to speak to a future event. This is a dramatic rendering of that which already took place, much like we've seen in other sign actions in Old Testament prophecy. So Zechariah is instructed to play the role of a shepherd. This is like the drama of doctrine. Great book by Kevin Van Hooser that kind of lays out the, the, the fact that this can be, this is a dramatic rendering. And the shepherd he is playing in the second act is the true shepherd, the Lord himself. He's meant to represent the Lord in this dramatic rendering characterized the Lord's relationship with him. Much the same way like that if you ever read through the prophet Hosea, prophet Hosea is meant to be in the same way. He's meant to represent the Lord and characterize the Lord's relationship with his people in his pursuit of his wife, right? And what we find at the outset of this relationship is that the true shepherd's sheep are headed to slaughter. So if there's a, if there's a summary statement, okay, for this look backward, it's that throughout Israel's history, throughout the people of God's history, the true shepherd's sheep are headed to slaughter. They're doomed to slaughter. Now, it was common for some of the flocks, for, some of the, for a portion of the flock in the ancient Near East to be allotted for food. Right? So it would be um, food for the surrounding villages, food for the shepherds themselves. But the vast majority would be preserved for wool. That's how they would make their money. I would be preserved for this function. So to have the majority of one's flock doomed to the slaughterhouse would be deeply troubling for any shepherd. We're not, you know, um, we're not looking at the annihilation of the entire flock. We're looking at devastation, right? So, um, and come to think of it, those who are reading this, those who are watching the second act unfold, they're thinking, wait a minute, time out. How do we get from these doomed, these doomed sheep who are just wandering aimlessly into the slaughterhouse. Like they're doomed to slaughter, to this future vision that we just saw in which God's like clearing out the false shepherds to prepare a place for his people. Like 
How do you get from one to the other? How do we overcome this problem? But before answering this question, Zechariah presses in further related to why these sheep are doomed to slaughter. He writes, verse 5, Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. That's predatory. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. So he's saying like, the false shepherds take advantage of them, they profit off of them, it's predatory, right? They go unpunished throughout Israel's history. Those who are tasked with oversight, they don't have any pity. Like the prophets have come to Israel again and again and they've warned them. Like speaking the word of the Lord to them, it's like, thus saith the Lord, don't you know, don't, the sheep are kind of, you kind of get this image of the sheep kind of just happily running into the slaughterhouse. And the prophets are yelling, thus says the Lord, don't you know what that building is? Don't you know where you're headed? But they're like, I don't want to hear it. I, I'm, I'm just going to happily stroll in there. This is, this is my direction. This is where I'm headed. And so the prophets, they, they have no pity. Indeed, neither does the Lord. Verse 6, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none into their hand. He's saying, he's saying listen, Israel's heart was turned by the surrounding pagan nations rather than becoming a light to them. Okay? They adopted the pagan practices of their neighbors rather than showing them the truth and goodness of Yahweh. Okay? They, they sought after worldly wisdom and worldly strength. They looked at the surrounding nations as like a template of what they wanted to be. Like, give us a king like that. Give us military power like that. Give us influence like that. And so now the Lord just, he gives them over to, um, into the hands of those who they've idolized. The kind of leadership they've idolized. What's he talking about? He's finding another way to talk about this pattern of sin and servitude that we've been Talking about through Zechariah, through Israel's history. God in his patience and forbearance forgives them, brings them into the land. They become complacent, forgetful, wicked. They stumble headlong into sin, which then leads to them being ruled over by foreign nations. You know, there's this cycle of sin and servitude. What happens next? Verses 7 through 9. Zechariah writes, So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep, traitors. And I took two staffs, one named Favor, the other named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. So continuing to act out this sign, this dramatic rendering to God's people, Zechariah continues to represent the Lord, who now continues to shepherd the sheep we're doomed to slaughter. Like, there's hope here. That's the, that's the idea of the text. Because he's got a few options, right? Like, the shepherd of this group of sheep, he doesn't have to continue to shepherd them. I mean, come on, if you're just going to keep happily wandering right into the slaughterhouse, you don't want to listen. You're not hearing the voice of your shepherd. You're not hearing the warnings. Then, fine, I'll, I guess I'll go to another, I'll find another flock. I'll start over with a flock that will, that will follow me. Or I'll do something else entirely. But fine, go. But no, that's not what happens here. He could have just abandoned the doomed flock, but instead he continues to shepherd them. He uses two shafts, staffs to shepherd them, and he tends them with care. You know, the staff, of course, is the, it's the tool of the shepherd to guard 
and protect the flock from predators, to guide them in their journey, to discipline them. We're going to get to a little bit more in depth in the meaning of, of these, just briefly, these staffs in the next set of verses. But I think pretty clearly on the face of it, we're talking about favor with the Lord and union together as God's people. Right? And so he's, he's tending the sheep with these staffs. But for now we know they're being tended. They're being shepherded by the good, true shepherd in the midst of their guilt, in the midst of their doom. You know, in the midst of their rebellion, God is still their shepherd. He's still at work. But the shepherd's at a loss related to the actions of the sheep. They've given him no reason at all to trust them. You know, so there's a lot of discussion related to the identity of these three shepherds that the, that the Lord destroys in one month. Some say it's referring to the last three kings of Judah. That might be the case, but what I find a little more compelling is that this word month, it's likely referring to this month that Jerusalem fell into exile. I think that best fits the context of Zechariah as a whole. If that's the case, it's possible that the three shepherds being struck down here are the three types of leadership that fell alongside of Jerusalem in 586 BC, the the, the prophets, priests, and kings, though I say that with massive hesitation. We cannot be certain. What I think is more certain is that here we, we find a reference to the month Jerusalem fell, which, if you remember, was a key discussion related to the fasting delegation from Bethel. They came and they said, should we continue to fast in the fifth month as a remembrance of of exile, right? It was a remembrance of coming out of exile. So the Lord, again, is, is he's speaking to his people about exile. He says, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And those who are left, devour the flesh of one another. Let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. He's talking about exile. And I think we, we see the real hardness of Israel's heart in verses 10 through 14, in, in hearing these words. Listen to this. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took 30 pieces of, the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So this old covenant, the terms of which, by the way, so God's established this Mosaic covenant with his people, the terms of which God's people routinely violated. They're always violating the terms of this covenant in which there are both blessings and curses for Israel, if you remember in reading through Deuteronomy, right? We, we commonly come back to this blessing and curses language in the Old Testament. Blessings for obedience and repentance, uh, for obedience and repentance, but curses for disobedience and rebellion. And throughout the Old Testament, what do we come to find? That obedience and repentance, like an obedient heart who hears the voice of the Lord and turns and repents, it's seemingly impossible for God's people. They can't do it, but there's all kinds of curses because they're always violating this covenant. But here we see that's annulled by God in the sense that he cuts them off and he sends them away. Now here's where we see the hardness of heart because Zechariah comes to them and he essentially says, okay, this is the truth. This is the truth of the matter. If you don't like what you're hearing here, if you don't like the play that you're watching, If you don't like seeing or reading about your sin and its consequences, like being confronted by it routinely, just give me my wages as your prophet. 
and I'll go away. But if you want to hear the hard truth of the matter so that you can turn from your sin and toward the Lord, I'll tell you about it. And without any hesitation at all, without any thought given, without any discussion among the people of God, God's people are like, here you go. They give them the 30 pieces of silver. It's quite a lot of money. Quite a lot of money in its time. A decent wage for a prophet. And they essentially say, now take a hike. Like here, we're paying you this, now leave. And listen, this is the insidiousness of sin. I see it in my own heart. I've sadly seen it played out in extremes. In 20 years, counseling with people. Um, in which sometimes sin is brought before us. Sin is brought before people. And we just refuse to listen or take responsibility for it. It's really hard to hear. Like, it's like an animal that's being humanely trapped. Like a sick animal that's being humanely trapped in order to, to be treated and let go again. Like it's for their good. But it's like a trapped animal who then chews their own arm off in order to get out of the trap. Even though they're, they're being tra the one who's trapping them is trying to help them. Even when they're trapped for their own good, they don't want it. Why? Because it's too hard, it's too hard to face our own sin. It's too hard to take responsibility. It's too hard to hear those things. Like, oftentimes we can't bear the weight of it. And it's too hard for Israel to hear the truth. So they throw some money at the prophet. Essentially this is like telling him to leave, telling him to go. It's like every once in a while in college football you have this coach that's so bad. Or like he's had such poor success. It's not necessarily that he's a bad coach, but it's like he's been off to a bad start. So he, you know, it's like creating a losing culture. We can't have that. So, um, but it's so bad that such poor success that the athletic department of the university is willing to pay him millions of dollars just to see him leave. Like you see this. Um, more recently, LSU's firing of Coach O after a string of ugly performances in 2021 comes to mind. The coach was being interviewed after the firing, and he retold the story of LSU. Um, off, he, he, they essentially came to him and they said, look, you've got $17 million left on your contract. We'll give you every single penny all at once, no questions asked, if you just walk away quietly, and Coach O famously responded, you know, what time do you want me to leave and what door do you want me out of, brother, you know? Um, and the sentiment is similar here in terms of God's people wanting to give whatever it takes to get rid of, the, of God's prophet, but it's different in the sense that rather than the large sum of 30 pieces of silver being taken, rather than saying, what time do you want me to leave, what door do you want me out of, these 30 pieces of silver are seen as an offense to this prophet, a betrayal. Because they're not just asking Zechariah to leave. They're not just sending him away. They're asking the Lord to leave. They're sending the Lord away. They don't want to hear from him any longer. And any amount of money that one might suggest to give to the Lord to keep him quiet is utterly insulting. I mean, think about that for a moment. What can you possibly give to the Lord that you possess to have him do what you want him to do? It's absurd. It's betrayal. With these 30 pieces of silver, God's people attempt to quiet the one who's sent to deliver the word of God. They attempt to stop God from intervening and telling them about their sin. This, this command to throw the 30 pieces to the potter, I'm not sure. It, it's probably a reference either to the foundry that would melt down precious metals, maybe to Persia for taxes. Again, talking a little bit about exile and foreign rules, but the don't get lost in the details. The point of this second act is that God has now given his people a look backward at their sin. A look, at God's, a look that God's people clearly don't want to have. Like they don't want it. It's really hard, but it's a historical summary. Because of their sin, they're headed to slaughter. 
Because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, they're doomed to slaughter. And, and God's favor has been broken because of their sin. Their union as the people of God together has been broken. That's the look backwards. But finally now he gives them this focus on the here and now because they're, they're in between these two realities, right? They've been given this future glimpse of hope, of what God wants to do. And, and they've been given this look backwards that they're actually doomed to slaughter. So, so how do they deal now in this present circumstance? What do they do now in this present day survey? Verses 15 through 17, the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones. Again, back to the lions, right? Predatory. Tearing off their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye, that his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Here's the third act. Zechariah, so it's another sign action. Zechariah takes up now the equipment of the foolish shepherds, the false shepherds. Essentially, in this act, the Lord is telling them, okay, in, presently, do you want to know how things ended up this way? Like, you come out of exile, you look around, you're like, why are things the way that they are? But do you want to know why? Do you want to know how? How you ended up with the shepherds that now rule over you, the worthless ones, the ones that tear you apart, the ones that take advantage? It's because of your great need. It's because of our great need. We're a people of great need. That's what chapter 11 focuses us on. But the good news in this passage, knowing that Zechariah is good news for disappointed people, is that while the old covenant brought curses upon God's people, because they were unfaithful, because they couldn't follow, they couldn't be obedient, they couldn't seek for God, they couldn't. So while the old covenant brought constant curses, and they were in this cycle of servitude and sin, sin and servitude, right? Um, they continue to go through this cycle. The old covenant brings these curses because they're unfaithful. The central message of this book is that God is preparing to bring about a new covenant, a new covenant with them. And Myers writes this, very helpful. Listen, I'm going to read this a couple times. He says, the new covenant will be the same as the old one, but will be constructed in such a way that the people will no longer be able to violate its terms. Right? So it's the same as the old one in the sense of the blessings, but no more do we find these curses in a sense. Why? He says, it will be written on the hearts of the people. That is, Yahweh will enable his people to do what they could not do for themselves, to obey its stipulations. Let me read that one more time in its entirety. The new covenant will be the same as the old one, but will be constructed in such a way that the people will no longer be able to violate its terms. It will be written on the hearts of the people. That's what we read about in church membership this morning, right? Like, you're written on their hearts. That is, Yahweh will enable his people to do what they could not do for themselves, to obey its stipulations. See, it's, it's, not, it's not that the curses go away because now I can sin and there's no consequence. It's not cheap grace. It's not what it's talking about. It's not saying, like, now there's only blessing, no curses, because we can sin as much as we want and it's no big deal. It's not what it's talking about. It's saying, rather... We, we want to stop sinning, right? We want to follow. All, all the things that lead to these curses, we increase, those desires increasingly fade, and our desire for the true shepherd now, this thing that's written on our hearts, this is what grows, and we become more and more into his likeness, right? Like, we hear, now we hear the voice of our shepherd, 
And we recognize it and we follow him because it's written on our hearts. It's written on our hearts. While the situation is desperate for Israel, God is on the move. While there are many false shoots who've sprung up and preyed on God's people, the true shoot will come. He will live the life that we should have lived but failed to. He'll also be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver in an effort from his people to silence him and send him away to his death. But this true shoot, Jesus Christ, is the true and better Zechariah who, though he's betrayed and sent away, sent to die, actually came into the world for that purpose so that God's people could be reconciled to him again. In his work, he reestablishes our favor with God. He brings about true union with his people. A favor and a union will tangibly see and experience at the table together this morning. We're a people of great neediness, all of us. Sometimes it's hard to hear about our sin. Like this is what makes the gospel offensive. When you read the scriptures and it talks about how the gospel, the good news of Jesus is offensive, this is what it's talking about. It's saying like, man, it is, why is Jesus a stumbling block? Because in order to hear about Jesus as Savior, you need to be confronted with the reality of your sin, the desperation that you are in. So we often don't want to hear it. We often desire to do whatever it takes to close our ears and send the word away that our sin may not be exposed. And yet the Lord came that we might have our sins finally and fully dealt with at the cross where we might find forgiveness and peace and life. And we're going to celebrate that incarnation that made that possible on Saturday night. We're going to look specifically at this question of what's the remedy for sheep that are headed to slaughter? What does this coming one do for sheep that are headed to slaughter? So please come, bring friends. But we also remember what he did for us at the table together, which is a proclamation of Jesus doing for us what we could never do at the cross. His body was broken, his blood was shed, standing in our place that we might now have favor with God and union with one another. So if you're a believer, this meal is for you. I'll invite you forward here in a moment to take and bring them back to your seats. If you're here and you're a skeptic, you have questions, you have doubts, it's okay, participate, observe, but I would also say at this point, throw yourself on Christ's mercies because the favor he offers you is real. The hope that he holds out is real. It is over and above anything, any possible answer to the need that you could imagine, right? So I invite you to, to throw yourselves on Christ's mercies and come and enjoy this meal as... Um, a believer, but I invite you forward now to take these elements with you back to your seats.